Welcome to the Trevor Turnbull Show, where you'll hear vulnerable, honest stories that will inspire you to embrace your mess and live your best life. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My guest today is Shelby Scarborough. So Shelby and I got connected through a mutual contact, one of those ones where that person says, the two of you have to connect. There's going to be some synergies in a great conversation here. And it was, again, as usual. <laughs> I don't know why I act so surprised all the time that happens because it just seems to happen over and over and over again. It's almost a, you know, an energetic thing. There's an attraction of me bringing in these amazing people into my life. Shelby's one of those people. So Shelby and I talked about the idea of civility, which is something that she's very well known for, a word that she's very well known for. And what does it actually mean? You know, when I think civility, the first thing that comes up is just civil. How, what does it mean to be civil with your neighbor, with your fellow country people, men, women, with other countries, considering what we're dealing with in the world right now, a lot of divisiveness, divisiveness, and a, a lot of non-civility. I asked her the question, well, what does it mean to be civil? And she, she helped define that in the context of, you know, what empathy and compassion Uh, looks like in a world like we live in today. And not only from a business side, but also on the personal side as well. And quite frankly, we just need more civility in this world. So we dove deep on that topic. Shelby's got an incredibly interesting background too. She actually worked within the White House at one point of her career uh, during the Ronald Reagan years. She and her family have owned franchises over the years. I think they own like 12 Burger Kings at one point. Uh, just such a crazy diverse background. And she's also created an MBA, an entrepreneurial MBA. And we talked about that too, and just the shifting of the education system in the world. And the fact that you know people are familiar with MBAs, traditional MBAs through a university and in person in the past. And now, of course, we can do these distance learning MBA programs. But she created this because she saw a gap in the entrepreneurial space where you have somebody that is running their business and they're busy and they're moving very fast and they're innovating really quickly. And a traditional MBA just won't be as as valuable to them as an entrepreneurial MBA. So we discussed like, what does that look like? What's the format of it? How is it different from a regular MBA? And who is it right for? And I was really interested in this because I'm constantly thinking about my kids. Now, they're only four and five right now, but at some point in the future beyond the high school years, however, that's going to roll out for them too, whether it's homeschooling or private schooling or public school. I don't know. It's going to be a combination of all three, I think, and more. But then what? Do they go to university? Do they not? Do they actually just go straight into a mentorship with somebody or a business that they admire and then learn through that? Do they just travel the world? Do they go into an entrepreneurial type of a environment and then potentially even get an entrepreneurial MBA? I'm not sure, but it fascinates me to have conversations with people that are thinking in this way. And I think that you're really going to enjoy Shelby. She's just got such a uh, a presence and an energy and a warmth to her. And we definitely need more civility in this world. So let's go ahead and give this one a listen. All right, Shelby, so nice to see you again. Uh, Really enjoyed our last conversation and looking forward to having another chat with you here today. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I I was just telling you before we hit the record button here that I was going back on my notes and trying to think 
like, what did we exactly talk about? Because I take pretty good notes most of the time. And there was like four things where I was like, oh man, I got to get into this with you on this conversation. And I haven't prepared you for any of it, but you know, I would have done an introduction, kind of the formal introduction of who you are and your background and all that kind of stuff before uh, on the recording here. But um, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting from our last conversation was this global school of entrepreneurship that you've created, the MBA program, your conversation and talk and book about civility. And that I think is a really interesting conversation to have considering the state of the world that we're in even too, because I just rewatched the first like minute of your talk there when you walked on stage and shook the hand of that guy. And then that was actually kind of the grounding point at the start of your your talk. And I'm just thinking like, man, that was like 2016. Man, the world has changed since then, hasn't it? And Yeah. Now even handshakes are a bit of taboo. Right. You know, so I'm interested to dive down that uh, rap, proverbial rabbit hole as well. And, and then also just this idea too, and I'm just kind of throwing all of these things out there and then I'll ask you an actual question. But um, the other idea too, I think I mentioned to you that I sold a business two years ago to a company that is now a, has a parent company called Republics that one of the the mandates of the company is really in making sure that everybody in our company, including our clients too, can live their best life. And there's a lot of definitions of what that ultimately looks like. But I interview a lot of people talking about that topic as well. And Civility and what you talk about in your book and your and your TED talk, it kind of ties into that as well, right? It's like how do you have your make sure that your voice is heard and that you know ultimately you feel valued and respected in your workplace because we spend so much darn time you know working and connecting and and engaging with other people that it's a piece of the puzzle, isn't it? And it is. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) There is a lot to unpack there. Yeah, for sure. So why don't we start off actually quickly with, um, if you could just give a little bit of your background uh, outside of what Google tells me and what your your website tells me, you know, what brought you to this point? And ultimately, why do you believe that you and I even got connected too? Because we got connected through a guy by the name of Justin Breen, who you've met through different circles and stuff. But um, maybe just give us the, uh, the abbreviated version of, of what brought you to here. Sure. Um, I think, you know, about 10 years ago, I, the sum total of my professional experience, both in the White House, the State Department, and then starting my own business around, um, around the idea of protocol logistics for dignitaries kind of brought me to a point where I was contacted by a book, a person who was putting a book together called The Power of Civility. And most of the people who wrote in the book were writing sections on, um, they were image consultants. Most of the people who, it was a compilation book and the people who were submitting sections on it were image consultants. So kind of etiquette people, that kind of thing. I'm, that's sort of part of what, you know, my world is, but I'm a very informal protocol person in that sense. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't watch how people eat, although we, I, we just, I just got off the phone from a preparing for a, a civilized supper, which we do, which is like a state dinner, a mock state dinner. And, and that's the only time I look at when people eat. Cause I don't ever want to watch, have anybody watch me eat either. But, <laughs> so the etiquette part of it is, um, is a little bit, um, it's just a subset of the bigger picture, but what got me started in it is they asked me if I wanted to write a, um, a chapter on international civility, which is kind of where 
I had really lived in the international world and pr- cross-cultural behaviors and things. And I really still find that fascinating. And then they, or political civility. So I wrote a whole section of the book on political civility, and that was over 10 years ago now. And I thought to myself, this could be a whole book in itself because it, it's just bottom line is there's probably never been political civility. It's kind of an oxymoron. And um, because, you know, mudslinging really was mudslinging and people threw tomatoes at people and they've always, you know, you see episodes of parliament in Great Britain and they're yelling at each other and sometimes they get into fist fights in Japan. And I mean, there's some sumo wrestling going on somewhere. there. It's kind of funny in a way, but we've kind of now come to this place that it is almost tragic versus humorous. And um, that we are not able to hear each other anymore because we're so polarized, especially in the United States or North America, we're so polarized with, um, if you don't believe as I believe, then you're evil. And I just find that premise to be evil in and of itself. It is, it is, it is dastardly really to set up something where the other person, no matter what party they're in, and, and both parties in our case in the U.S. Are, are playing that game. Both parties are saying, if you don't believe me, then you're evil. That's wrong. It's just wrong. There is a right and wrong. I, I In the diplomatic world, in the civil world, civility world, I think there's a lot of gray as to far as, um, you know, I tend to have a lot of uh, latitude when if somebody has a different opinion than I do, because I believe that's the way we should look at the world. It's, it's, it really is gray. It's not necessarily black and white, but to, to put it in the realm of evil or good about, you know, somebody thinking something different, we really need to recalibrate our basis on that. And so I've just, that's where I've really come to is to really kind of focus on that in my own world and realize that, um, I'm the only one who can change the world around me for the better, hopefully, um, and that hopefully that will influence others to um, take on the challenge too and have a practice of civility in their own right. And that I can't go around telling people how to behave. That's not the point of the book. That's not the point of the TED Talk. It's just more to share an experience of, you know, this is a way of looking at the world. It's a philosophy of life, and I'm sharing it. And if it resonates and there are actions that you can take to take it forward in your world, then that would be fantastic. Yeah, I love that. And I it just gets me thinking of like how powerful or misconstrued words can be even at times too, right? Like civility civility when I think of it, I think uh I don't know, I guess maybe politics comes to mind at first, but then I also just think of like the extreme bad side of it, like war even, you know? Like what is civility? Does it mean being good to people? Like, you know, and then when you think of uh you know, just the reality of what we're all faced with right now when you talk about polarization on one side or the other, like I've heard people reference the COVID situation even too as you're either a COVIDian or you're a COVIDiot or something in between, <laughs> right? And I've never actually heard that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting, and, and I've, yeah, exactly. It's like the extremes on both sides and then this, uh, I forget the exact reference, but the alt middle kind of reference in, in the like, well, let's take what's true over here and what's true over here and let's come up with a new definition. And But we see it so much and naturally with um, the fact that we're all remote even too and not just in the political spectrum, but business and, and social and everything, right? Like it's become more challenging. And that's why I referenced at the start that like, what really stood out in your TED talk was like the handshake. And 
the focus on it at the start too, when you were making this reference. So maybe speak to that if you could. I'm sure you've thought about this, um, or maybe maybe you haven't. Maybe I'm just bringing it up for the first time. But how has the last two years impacted the way that you see this and how you ultimately communicate your message to leaders from a political standpoint or business leaders or just individuals trying to be the best versions of themselves? Has it shifted? Um, maybe just having more emphasis on it, you know, that it's people are, are more willing to talk about it, but it goes back to what you were saying is not everybody has the same definition of civility. Uh, so that's a good place to start. And in, in my world, civility, the root of it is civil is this, uh, civilitas, I think probably. And it, it goes back to the idea of community and collaboration and cooperation. And if this is how, how a civil society and civilized people, how, this is how they behave. Civilized people, what does that mean? Okay, well, you know, basically any group that's organized, any group or union that's organized together to cooperate on how their society functions. So um, that could be a, a very, what we would call a primitive tribe, you know, that doesn't have a lot of modern conveniences to um, a very sophisticated company that has um, everything is electronic and uh, completely high tech and, you know, the extremes of everything. But the, the point there is they have different ways that they need to respect one another and to show respect for one another in order to accomplish the goals of that community. So um, if you think of it in a corporate sense, we have sort of protocols that you'd like to do as far as how responding to emails or, um, even language used in emails and uh, paying attention on zoom calls uh, since so much is remote now, um, showing up to meetings on time, uh, being prepared, little things like that. These are things that showing respect for your colleagues. Um, the, the guy that shows up late all the time, you know, or can never seem to get it together. Um, this is a dis it, it, it comes across as they, they may not even realize what this is, but it's, in a sense, it is a disrespect to the other people in the room because they're not, um, participating in the coordination part of it in recognizing somebody else's needs as part of a civil society, a civil group. So the strict definition of civil, um, and in the, when you think of it in terms of societally, they'll say a civil society are, are is a company is a country that has, um, a, a, a trusted banking system and a trusted legal system. That's kind of a baseline for what we consider to be a civil society. But as I said, there are very primitive societies that are very civil. In fact, could be way more civil than modern societies, contemporary societies, and that we can learn a lot from them, you know, and I love the anthropologists, uh, the um, Margaret, what's her, what, uh, I'm just blanking. What's her name? Huh. Margaret Mead, um, you know, who spent so much time uh, with with early societies, societies that hadn't been touched by the outside world to show how they cooperated with one another. And they can provide prove much more civil than uh, some of our interactions on Twitter and on Facebook and some of these other areas. So we, we can learn a lot from people who live and work in close quarters and need to need to work out how they collaborate and, and build their community together. Long answer, probably can answer your question. <laughs> no, it's no, it's perfect though, because what comes to mind is is just how all of these pieces ultimately fit together. Because you know, like I said, we've only had one other conversation, but now we're talking now, and I'm starting to piece together pieces of this, and even where global school of entrepreneurship fits into this. Like when you talk about like leadership, 
these words and these philosophies come to mind, right? It's this idea of like, how do you lead by example, by being the best version of yourself or presenting yourself in the most respectful way with compassion and empathy. And, you know, I just made a note while you were talking there too, like diversity and inclusion in the last year, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of these things, like these became what might've been like, yeah, we're paying attention to it to like, no, we have dedicated meetings for this now internally, you know, to actually have discussions around these things. So, and that's what comes to mind is, um, is just leadership. Like what's your ultimately, I think your message and because of your background and, and what you stand for all of this, it's, it's so needed, you know, it's so needed to have the conversation as the starting point. And I think that's, Maybe, I don't know, you tell me, has that been maybe one of the things that you've seen kind of open up in the last couple of years is that people are now searching for this kind of thing, like an approach to take in like working with their leadership team on a business sense um, and even in the political spectrum as well? Like yes. there's been an accelerated, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a really fine line between um, creating a uh, say diversity inclusion, creating, think of the word diverse, right? Divergent, diverse. It's actually, um, I love diversity. I I love the fact that all the different cultures of the world are so different. And I I don't want us to become completely homogenized because I so enjoy going places where it's different than where I live and people do different things and they eat different things and they speak different languages. But given with that, you have to, there's a kind of a responsibility, a personal responsibility to reach into the other culture a bit and not expect the other culture to reach into yours. So if we, um, so I have, I have, that's a, we could spend hours talking about this and I'm not very politically correct on this because it's, it's, I really think it's personal responsibility and it's, I don't like the institutionalization of behavior. What I'm hoping for is that we have a discussion around personal responsibility and what our responsibility is to one another, but not what I am obligated to do with one somebody else. In other words, told me by my company, by my government, by anything, just that we reinstill some of the common values and raise children with values that that are about civility and cooperation and help to one another, empathy, trust, building trust with one another, um, rather than demanding it. You know, we have to earn it. And so uh, it's not about give me this because I've d- I deserve it. It's about I- I'm working my best to earn your trust and to earn your respect and to earn, you know, the, the right to be in- part of this group. So I- it's a very deep, deep and-, and sometimes divisive conversation in that specific arena. But we, it is top of mind in all companies right now, specifically in corporations and in government offices and things. One of the things that I like to weave into this and the workshop that I have coming up on it, um, we're just finishing the, out the workshop and the exercises. And it's really exciting because it's based on neurobiology. So it's not just my opinion about these things. I, it's taking the constructs that I talk about in the book, trust, respect, empathy, uh, compassion, honor, duty personal responsibility and breaking those things down into workable exercises that show people through neurobiology why this is important and how we can achieve certain goals that way. In other words, maybe some people are more inclined to empathy than others. So some people have it very naturally and others maybe not so much. So there are exercises that we can do to increase our empathy increase our ability to empathize with other people. So in the 
exercise exercises in this workshop, it's basically breaking it down pretty scientifically, not just this is a feel good, but this is why it's important. So what, what's behind anger, you know, because incivility often results in, or I should say angry outbursts, um, unkind treatment to somebody else is, is what we would think of as incivility, but so is not listening which may not be angry and it may not be an outburst. It may just be disrespectful, but um, how do we get behind some of these deep rooted causes and break those down? But it's not about me doing that for you. It's about me doing that for me and understanding myself. And then I might be able to spot how to help somebody else move through some things like that in a guided conversation because I don't want it to go off course. I want to keep the communication open, but now I have some skills that I can say, ah, this person is really angry. So instead of responding with anger, I need to get to the root of what the anger is. And I need to understand that anger. I don't need to agree with it. It's not about agreement on everything. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's about being able to disagree and talk through it. And maybe we find some common ground and maybe we agree to disagree, but at least have some respect for the other person's position for one reason or another. And we, we tend to just dismiss the other person's position right now without going through that exercise, that mental exercise of why do they have this opinion? So why does somebody think that, so why is, uh, to use your terminology, why is somebody a COVIDian and somebody a COVIDian? Well, there's, you think about the COVID, think about the way that's already phrased. That already sets up a fight. So if you don't agree with me, then you're an idiot. So I, I would disagree with that premise right at the outset. I would say that there are people who believe, let's say, just put it into different terminology, just people who believe strongly and believe in the vaccination project. And there are others who are hesitant about vaccinations for whatever reasons. And there could be multiple reasons. And I, I, I got a vaccin- vaccination, I, but I'll tell you what, I'm glad that I don't have young children that I have to make that decision for. And it is, it's a very complex thing when you have children and, and what, what you're going to do. And these are, you're making long-term decisions for them based on short-term knowledge. So these are things that I respect about somebody who doesn't feel comfortable with the vaccine right now. I chose to get it, but I do understand that there are people who have a different viewpoint. So if we can kind of come to some way to understand somebody else's perspective, perhaps we can move forward in the areas we do have commonalities. And it doesn't mean you can't be friends with somebody because they don't you know, I think people are really ch- challenged sometimes with, can I be friends with this person if they think that differently than I do? And I, I understand it's very emotionally charged, but that's the whole point is to recognize that it's emotionally charged and emotions and feelings are different than facts. So they are not the same and nor will they ever be the same. So we need to separate those two things and, and a belief is not necessarily a fact, but we, we may believe something, but it may not be, tr- it may not necessarily be true. And that can be true from either side of the argument. And as long as we understand that, that, that we, n- the humility part comes in, and this is a big part of this is per- is bringing humility to the table is to understand that while we have information, we may, we could, we are fallible human beings and we do not know everything there is to know. So there is a possibility we could be wrong. And so we might listen to something because maybe there's something we can learn. And that to me is a framework for, for civility and help and working with somebody else, especially when, if you agree on everything, what's the point of working at it? There's no point, but if it's when we disagree that we Very need true. these tools. <laughs> this is such a great chat. I kind of knew that we would go down 
this path without knowing exactly where it would go. But um, this is so needed, right? This is part of the reason why I did the podcast um, was to ultimately, you know, find the truth, knowing that there's no absolute truth and that there's lenses that we all see things through too. And I think what you articulated there was really helpful. And like I say, so needed in, in just helping us be better people, better human beings. And there was three things that actually came up that I want to reference here. Going back to when you first started talking at at this part of the segment, but I took an international business class in university I guess it would have been like 2001 or so. So this was pre-social media. And my professor at the time was somebody who had done business in China for like 30 years, right? And what he actually taught us to do was to go to the library, you know, those places that had books in them back in the day and the the whole decimal of the system to find them. And he said, go and read the papers. Yeah, he said, go and read the papers from other parts of the world. And get the perspective of a similar, like the exact same topic from each different region of the world. And you will understand why it's important to have all of these skills that you're talking about. And that was huge for me when I was, because at first, you know, like I'm from the middle of Canada, Saskatchewan. It's kind of like living in Iowa if you're in the U.S., you know, kind of like Midwest. And we didn't see outside of that province very often. Like I was lucky that I got to play hockey, so I was able to travel a little bit. but. That really opened my eyes um, to perspective outside of what our local news told me, right? So that was right. That was huge. It's very true, especially with the amount of overabundant information that we get. Um, but it is definitely algorithmized to death um, to to suit our personal tastes. And so I may get a feed that's, that has both, that has a lot of different things in it, but somebody who's very focused on one position or another, they're going to have their position. Everybody's position is reiterated and reinforced algorithmically. So we have to, if we need to take personal responsibility for this, we need to step back and either start Googling other things so that they bring in, that they retrain the feed, you know, so that we see other perspectives um, or seek out other perspectives intentionally. And I, for example, I, I try to watch, I mean, I have my favorite stations, but I try to watch it flip back and forth between the news to see w- how it's being portrayed in each thing, because there is no doubt that they are biased. There's no doubt. Di- all of them are biased. So um, to say one is more biased than the other, I, I would challenge it and I would, it would be a good study and I'm sure somebody has been doing it, but um, they all have their biases and they're, so to to be able to discern for that where the where the bias is, I took a journalism class in college, and that was one of the things that we had to look for was look at, look at for the where's the bias here? Do you see any bias in an unbiased journalist? Um, so learning to write without bias. Um, so therefore, when you talk about civility, taking it a step further, personal responsibility. How can I uh, present myself without bias? And when is it important to take a stand? And but. To, to choose my word so that I don't set it up that the other person stops listening immediately because I called them a COVID idiot or something like that. You see that kind of thing to, to just go back to that example, because that's a really clear example that immediately that sets somebody up for, to lose. It's a win-lose rather than a win-win conversation. So when you go to the Middle East and look at the reporting from there, they come from their perspective and um, you may not agree with it, or you may agree with it, but it's it's a perspective, and uh, there are definitely 
lines in the sand, um, moral lines in the sand for me. And I, you know, if somebody wants to know them, I can talk about them. But in general, I think I have a wider swath of what I'm willing to to discuss um, and live and let live kind of thing versus um, saying, well, I can't, I have to cut off my friendship with you because we disagree on who's president of the United States, you know, something like that. We just need to step back a little bit and really understand where the drama there is and where it, where it doesn't need to be that way. And if we can just, as my old colleague would say, bounce down a little bit and step back and take a deep breath and, come at it a fresh view and try to understand the other person's point of view right out of the gate. Like you were told to do with those newspapers. Yep. Have the conversation, right. And even like this type of um, platform here, this medium of podcasting, again, it was another grounding point for me of like, maybe I should just stop with my internal complaining and then my outside complaining at the dinner table where my wife has taken the brunt of my perspective and belief systems and instead say it out loud, train myself to be more empathetic and to understand all perspectives while still having my own opinion because of my own biases of my past experiences and what what's brought me to here. And one of the things that I made a note on here too, and just in the last week, actually, this has come up for me is you mentioned like anger, like if you, when you see somebody else trying to express their opinion in a corporate setting, political, whatever, you can very easily go to the place of like, that person's just an angry mofo and I'm not going to listen to them because you can tell that this is just coming from an angry place. But at the core of it, though, is always love, right? Like they're so passionate about their perspective because of a love for something. And you use the reference of like kids, right? Like I'm a parent. I've got three and five-year-old boys. And, you know, we're making our choices based on our own, you know, perspective and decisions and, and research and everything else. And it's all coming from a place of love. So there's some very polarizing perspectives where like I straight up don't agree with some people's perspective, but it's not necessarily because I'm angry, even though maybe it reflects that way sometimes, you know, and I'm actually just being very conscious of this right now to be aware of it more than anything. And to go to there what, was a what, what am I feeling? You know, ask yourself, yeah. what am I feeling? Yeah. And, and to get in touch with your own core feelings on it. And, and that can help you parse it a bit and go forward. You were going to give a quote. Yeah, no, to that point, though. And the it was a, a Deepak Chopra quote that I just came across my feed on Instagram, f- considering that same perspective of like what you Because like for anybody that doesn't know that's watching or listening to this, when you scroll through your feed and you slow down for a second and look at that quote, you see more stuff like that. Just so everybody knows, because I know a lot of everybody knows that, like it's that smart, right? So I see a lot of stuff that is of this perspective that we're talking about. And Deepak Chopra talked about, I don't know the exact quote, I don't have it in front of me, but said that, uh, you know, just because you disagree with somebody doesn't mean that you can't still love them. And that actually really landed for me recently too, just thinking about the differencing of opinions around, you know, the COVID situation, for example, with family. And not that it's really confrontational, but it's enough where I'll see something from a cousin that'll share something where I'm like, dude, like open your eyes, you know? And that's angry me just being like, come on, are you serious? You know? And then I immediately think like, geez, I don't know if I can talk to that cousin anymore. And then I'm like, wait a second, what am I feeling here, right? To your point, it's like, what am I feeling here? Am I trying to be right? Because I'm not right any more than they're right. We're all right. 
based on our own perspective, right? So yeah, yeah. And we might believe we're more right than the other person, but really, 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 when we step back and say it, are, can you guarantee that you're absolutely right? Yeah, I can't. And we no. can't. No. I mean, no, there's very can, little yeah. right now that we can 100% say with certainty that we are dead right. And so if we give our, if we understand that and accept that, then we can step off of our, you know, our soapbox a little bit. See, and it's funny for me even talking about this kind of stuff because I feel like I'm on a soapbox as I'm talking about it. And it's very awkward. Yeah. It's a very awkward place for me to be talking about, like almost self-consciously talking about it. Cause it's just, it's trying to explain this philosophy that I have sort of put together over time and tried to share if people are interested. And I, but I still respect the fact that they might not even agree with me. I have a friend who I wrote about in the book that said, you know, on not to me, but to social media, civility is feckless and meaning teethless and doesn't work and all of that. And there's no point to it. And we've got to burn it all down and start all over again. Well, that's a, that's a view. That's not my view, but that's a view. And she has her reasons for it. And I'm not sure I agree with those reasons, but they're her reasons. So what, who am I? Right. They're her reasons. They're, and they're real to her and they mean something to her. And, and I, and all I can do is live my truth in that sense. And I can't force her to think that we should live in a world of civility, but I can try to live the world that I believe in and, and uphold the, the values that, um, I believe are helpful to society and not uh, divisive or, or destructive, but that's just, that's where I am on it. And somebody else looks at the world very, very differently that we need to shake it up to, to start over. Um, and you, as we know, in, in business it, disruption, uh, has its advantages, but I don't believe in disruption that in, in a sense that is, um, you know, okay, good, good example of disruption is Uber, right? So Uber um, and Airbnb and all these, but you know, that, that have totally disrupted the, the different industries, the car rental industry and the taxi industry and all that. So um, somebody was hurt in that process and mostly the taxi drivers. Um, and so on a macro level, I'm okay with that. On a micro level, I, I understand that there's a taxi driver who has this medallion that has been passed on in their family and he's about to retire and the value of it just went to zero. And that was his retirement money. You know, so if you really get into it, there's, there's collateral damage when there's disruptive um, behavior in, any, in anything. And so, but does that mean when I think of innovation um, and creativity in, in, in ingenuity and disruptive technologies, et cetera, in business, am I against it? No, but I just think we ought to recognize that what's the disrupt, what's the disruption going to do robotics and the workforce. I mean, this, this is, this is a civility discussion in and of itself, because we're going to have people who are really negatively affected by the advances in technology and have always been, but, and what, so how do we, how do we live in a culture together that we can work together to find the right answers for everybody? Mm. Yeah. So much stuff coming up for me here. <laughs> Even the thought of how your workshops must be uh, structured too, in a way where you, you're not on a soapbox telling everybody this is how it is, but rather like creating the framework for a conversation to frame all of those things and, the other thing that comes to mind is just the, when you think about the neurology or I'm going to butcher the right terminology here, but 
the whole idea of like growth happens through breakdown, right? Like breakthroughs happen from breakdowns. Um, the same is true in science too, right? Like our bodies are actually resilient. One of the things that I learned recently was that like viruses don't want to kill us. They don't want to kill their hosts. They're actually here on purpose to help people evolve. And then when you bring it into the spiritual conversation, it just cracks a whole nother nut open, like from the perspective of like good versus evil and like, is evil actually bad? And anyways, we could go really down a rabbit hole on that one. Um, that would be interesting. Right? Maybe there's a follow-up interview to be it's done. It's the opposite on that of good evil, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's one I'm pondering right now. Uh, but I do want to address the global school of entrepreneurship too, because from that same perspective of the education system as a parent with three and five-year-olds with kids and and me growing up in traditional school, going and getting my university degree, coming out of it, not using my degree for anything really, aside from just the experience of going through and learning international business, my entrepreneurship class, like it was very valuable. Don't get me wrong. But then I went into school of hard knocks and found mentors and had some successes and some failures along the way. And like entrepreneurship was an incredible learning experience. And I want my kids to experience that too, without me forcing it down their throat, because I realized that like, not everybody is wired to be an entrepreneur. Maybe it can be taught to a certain degree, but there are foundational things that are different inside of certain people than others, right? Why did you decide to create the Global School of Entrepreneurship, this MBA program? What was the driver behind that? So I've been an entrepreneur for a very, very, very long time. And uh, it's I was raised in an entrepreneurial family. So was I born or made an entrepreneur? I think uh, a little bit of both, probably. There's a little bit of DNA from my parents who started their own business. And I also worked in those businesses early on from a, about 14 years old on. And so I, I you know, I got the my hands dirty, rolled up my sleeves and, and worked every position. We had fast food restaurants. So um, I worked every position and uh, all the way in through management and in the back office and in the front of the front line and the drive-through and everything you can imagine. Um, so <clears throat> now um, I've had some advanced education opportunities and I loved every one of them. But one of the things that stands out to me for entrepreneurs and a, and a master's degree in particular, an MBA in particular, is that a lot of entrepreneurs don't have an MBA and there is a school of thought that if they don't need one um, because the MBA is kind of um, a product meant for middle managers in bigger companies or in, in corporations and not necessarily for the business owner. But those skills and those, those learning sets are valuable to anybody in business. And then there's a whole other set of entrepreneurs who would like to have had one, but they're so busy running their business that they don't have time to take two years out and go through the traditional format of an MBA program. And by the time they get done, everybody's 10 years younger than they are, and it just feels like not the right thing. And so now then those, edu those executive education programs were born, but that isn't often those aren't degree programs. So what we thought is let's do an MBA specifically for entrepreneurs that meets the needs of an entrepreneur in motion, an entrepreneur in action. And I call it a new way to MBA because basically we don't take the entrepreneur out of their environment. We want to facilitate their learning using what they're doing in their businesses and be able to make it very pragmatic and very practical uh, along with the theory. So 
you learn the fundamental concepts that are pushed forward in an MBA that, that the, the accrediting agencies believe an MBA is, <laughs> what is that? And it's the fundamentals of finance and marketing and personnel and um, leadership management, those kinds of things. And then you, uh, and those, then there's these, the models and the four P's of marketing, you know, all those kind of things that you can remember from a, a textbook, but then there's real learning that is the real world. And so what we do is we have readings. Um, and then every other week we get together with a small cohort of eight to 10 entrepreneurs with a professor and a distinguished lecturer who comes on and talks about a specific subject. And we, we've usually had a reading up to that point to get ready. Maybe it's their book or a book that's related to the subject. And then conversation during the lecture with the, with the guest speaker and the professor, and then maybe a homework piece that's uh, basically synthesizes the learning for that person. So a good example is the Harvard case study method is, is one that's really lauded. It's a hundred years old. I think this year, the case study method. And so I was kind of joking because I did the Harvard um, OPM owner president managed program, which I found really great and fun and interesting, but it was most valuable to me because of the other people in the class. And I'm the, I'm our reunion chair. So I love gathering, I love convening people and bringing them together. So this is my, my gift back to the, to our, our group is to be that person who, who gets our groups together every year uh, or every other year. And so, um, but in the meantime, we learned in the classroom about these case studies, which were meant to be real life, but there really aren't real life. And the professors who are amazing teachers and teach amazing concepts are not teaching the people in the room who are in the, in the business. The MBA programs are traditionally people who haven't had that direct experience. But in this uh, accelerated program, the executive program, owner, president, managed program, I feel one of the areas they're missing out on is the people in the room and their personal experience and sharing, look, this doesn't really work or this worked really well and how, how they apply the applied aspect of this, of all of this learning. So that's what we're doing is we're bringing people together in a small cohort to talk to each other and to use the, to bring in the civility. We use a lot of emotional intelligence and team building and trust building and sharing and the ability to learn languages that, that communication skills that will help them in their personal lives, as well as their professional lives to really apply all of these things in their world. And the, the first third of the MBA is, is the core, core concepts, essentially. The second third is kind of going a little deeper. And the third trimester, I guess we'd call it the third, the final third of the program is taking those concepts and synthesizing them into a project that's right for that particular entrepreneur. So that then at the end, they can present their project and it's meaningful to them. They take it right into their business and use it right away. So to us, that was a really intriguing way to reinvent the MBA for specifically to address the needs of entrepreneurs. And I'm in the first cohort, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my own MBA (laughs) from my own MBA program. So it's been fun to, to, you know, shepherd that through as well as be on the learning side of it and to really help shape that as well. It's very cool. It's, um, it's something that's, you know, just hearing you talk about it, I'm thinking for a better part of a decade, I've been thinking this is needed. But like, where do you start? <laughs> How do you pull it all together? And naturally, like your years and years of experience in business and all of these different avenues that you've taken have prepared you to be able to pull all those pieces together and knowing that it'll probably evolve too, right? Like it's going to shift and change and form exactly how it's supposed to, just like entrepreneurship, right? That's actually one of the ironic, beautiful parts about it is that 
it doesn't need to be rigid. In fact, it's it should be flexible, just like the real world. <laughs> you know, um, you know. For example, as an undergrad, I took um, I went to UCLA, and my undergrad, I had a science class I had to take. I was an English major, and I took Computer One Hundred and One. It was Engineering One Hundred and One or something like that, and it was computers. Well, we were sitting in a big hall. We had no, we never touched a computer. They didn't have any computers. That's how old I am. Didn't have any computers on campus <laughs> except in the engineering lab. And, um, they had, they talked, taught us about what a CPU was and the basics of the old programming languages, like, and punch cards. We had to learn what a punch card did and bits and bytes. And that was it. And so that's, it was a college level class way back in 19, you know, and so now that would be ridiculous to have a class about that at a college level now. So what we do by comparison is now, for example, in the MBA program, we're going to be talking about, you know, Bitcoin and um, blockchain and AI. And, and there might be a time where you don't have to have that introductory conversation about all of that kind of stuff, but it's so it's moving and we have to address kind of that, how that is going to impact business in the future. It's been, it's been an interesting journey to pick this up. Yeah, for sure. And I like in my, from my uh, lens of where I am here too, again, as a parent, like I'm looking at all of these options as well, even for my kids to address exactly the same things you're talking about, right? Like the education that I get to create for my kids, I'm not even saying wants because I get to create it and I will create it, even if I have to create it, is emotional intelligence. It is learning about what is coming in the future that we're still unclear about exactly where all this stuff's going to land, crypto and blockchain and everything else. Like there's parts of it that's like grounded, but there's others that's kind of like, I don't know, let's see what happens in 10 years, you know? And just have my kids experience all of that, as well as culture, like we started this conversation off with, right? Like, I'm not sure if I mentioned to you, but we're moving our family to either Costa Rica or Panama or Mexico or somewhere. And that's a part of it. It's literally to land us in a vibration of people that, you know, the the analogy in the story is that of that fisherman that... You know, have you ever heard that story where the fisherman goes out, catches their fish, bring it back, and they're just so happy. And then, you know, the corporate person comes in and says, I can 10x your business. And then they do that and then they're not happy no more. We want to go live that slow, just that like happiness at the core kind of life. Right. And that's the culture side that's of things. That's so, what I call the joy journey. The, that's mm, what I call the joy oh, journey. Yeah. So appreciating, appreciating life when you're in it. Um, and I tend to be like that person who goes, oh, you can, you could scale and you could do this and you could do that all to do what? So, oh, then you could retire and go fishing. Well, and, and they say, I think that's the thing with your example. And they're saying, but that's what I'm already doing. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the complete version of that, of that story. Yeah, because. you filled in the gap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and enjoying the journey as you go and appreciating every step. Um, and, you know, happy people, people filled with gratitude, people, you know, when you've got those um, the dopamine and the serotonin all firing in your brain because you are gratified and you're satisfied and you're happy, that makes for a more civil world because you're going to, you're going to show up in the world in a way that's more civil to somebody else because you're not going to be stressed and anxious and impatient. You're, you know, you'll be more likely to just let some things roll off your back that just don't matter. And to not worry about being right all the time or, you know, those kinds of things. So just be able to pick your fights <laughs> and, and teach Absolutely. your children a, a way of living and thinking that is about gratitude and open-mindedness and understanding that 
it's good if we're different. Different is not bad. Different is can be beautiful, and it should be celebrated. And uh, and trying to make us all the same is a little bit uh, sad for me. I find I find that to be sad if that, that we're all the same. We need to celebrate our differences in my world. That's the way I love to look at it. So I'm glad you're going to take that journey with them. That's going to be really a magnificent learning experience for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that really grounded for me there is to just be the example of that too, as opposed to even telling my kids how to be, right? Like there's a reason, I don't know if you noticed it on the wall here, but be grateful, be curious and be brave. And on that note, actually, I always end my interviews with a handful of questions. And I'm very conscious of time here though, because I know you got to go at the top of the hour. So, but I do want to ask you one question, one more question, which is what is one thing that you're most grateful for right now? Oh my goodness. I'm really grateful for a lot of things. And, you know, it's easy to go off on the things that are not working right or, you know, but I'm really grateful for the fact that my parents are healthy and I have time that I can spend with them. And um, I'm very grateful for the ability to push some of these um, passion projects across the finish line and see them come to life and find other people um, embracing them. That's really encouraging. And um, I'm just grateful to, I'm just grateful to be here. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sorrow in the world and I, I, I just want to be a point of joy and I hope that I'm helpful to in that respect to the people around me. Amazing. Well, I'll acknowledge you for that because that's the energy that I've got from you and the only couple of interactions that we've had and, and then what Google tells me and everything in between. So the things that you're doing, I think are actually making a difference to, you know, make people more self-aware and, and um, self-regulated and, you know, just taking personal responsibility, like you said, and it's damn important, you know, like it's really important. And I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation. Um, so how can people find out more about you, connect with you, find out more about the workshops you're doing, the global school of entrepreneurship, all that stuff. Um, well, there's uh, they could go to my e-commerce site's a fun one called joyjourney.life. And so there's a little, there's a lot about joy, joyful products and that can backwards reverse into my bio and where to find me and things. And then, uh, the other one is, uh, Shelby at, uh, gse.mba is my email. So gse.mba is our website for the global school of entrepreneurship. And, uh, if anybody's interested in that, I'd love to talk to him. Awesome. I will make sure to link all that stuff up. So again, thank you so much for doing this chat with me. This has been a lot of fun. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Trevor Turnbull Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please consider subscribing on my YouTube channel and on your favorite podcast platform and leave me a review. I'd love to hear from you. Now, until next time, remember, today is a beautiful day of opportunity. Trust that you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. So be grateful, be curious, and be brave. 